0: now and forever amen please be seated so here we have that collector reminding us that we are not the light but we reflect the light and to reflect the light we have to be near the light right you can't just have a mirror in the dark and expect it to light up things around it you have to have the mirror next to a light did you ever have one of those books growing up where, and maybe it was a 90s thing, I don't know, but it was those, those pictures with the seemingly repetitive designs, and if you stuck it right up to your face and pulled it back and crossed your eyes and you, you saw something else, did you ever have one of those? Anybody, am I crazy? Anybody else have one of those? I hated them. Because I could never see the blasted thing. It seemed like all of my friends could see what was going on, and I never could. And so as we're talking about light and seeing and looking at today's texts, I want us to think about, number one, the light, and number two, what is the lectionary trying to say? Because it seems to me that an odd thing, that here we are in the second Sunday of Epiphany, and... Last week, in the first Sunday of Epiphany, we talked about the baptism of our Lord. And here we are in the second Sunday of Epiphany, and what are we talking about in the Gospel? The baptism of our Lord, right? The baptism of our Lord. Or the context of it with John the Baptist. What is going on? Why the emphasis on this? Well, as often is the case... If we look at the other scriptures around the gospel, we're given a bit of, the clue, of a clue today. What was the first reading that our lector, Phil, read for us? It was from Exodus chapter 12, right? And those of you that have gone through my first communion class or are familiar with the Old Testament, what's going on at this point in Exodus in chapter 12? What's this talking about? What do we know this as? The Passover. Right, the Passover. What's the context of the Passover? First of all, maybe what is the Passover? Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's the last plague of the Egyptians, right? Right. Moses has gone to Pharaoh and said, Let my people go. Pharaoh doesn't do that. And so we have the plagues, and here we come to the last plague, which is the cost of the firstborn for the Egyptians. But God's people are given this thing called the Passover, where they eat this feast and sacrifice this lamb or goat and take the blood and put it in, on the doorpost in the lintel of their house. And when the angel of death comes, he passes over them. And they're saved, that plague. So that they can escape slavery. If we look at the gospel passage in that context, how does it change the emphasis of the gospel passage? All of a sudden, we go from focusing on the baptism of our Lord which is an important thing, to focusing on the sacrifice of our Lord. Notice, what does John the Baptist say twice in today's gospel passage? Did you catch it? Yes. Behold, this is verse 29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again, afterwards, we see him say that in verse 36. Behold, the Lamb of God, says John the Baptist about Jesus Christ. We say this, Every Sunday, in the context of the communion prayer, too, don't we? Remember, right before we take Holy Communion, after the prayer of consecration, we say what? Sometimes we sing it Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God, You take away the sins of the world. Grant us your peace. This chant comes at least to us from the 600s AD. It comes to the west from the Syriac chant, where it probably goes back even further. To focus on the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And there's three functions of that Lamb that we're going to talk about today. As we look at sacrifice in the Lamb of God, number one, the Lamb that cleanses the sin of the world. Number two, the friend that takes away the penalty of sin for his friends. Number three, the victor that grants peace through conquering sin. So, in looking at Christ as the Lamb, we see the Lamb, the friend, the victor. Let's start with the Lamb. In the Exodus passage, as we've already said, we're looking at the Passover. We're looking at God saving his people through this ritual that they're told they're to do forever. Look at verse 22 and 23 of the first reading. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel of the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you should go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you. This first Passover is a crucial event for God's people in the Old Testament. It is God coming to their rescue. It's God coming to their aid. It's a sacrifice that is God's mercy so that they can get away from the Egyptians. And it's also a ritual that they're to carry with them and never forget. Look again at verses 26 and 27. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. So the Jews keep the Passover feast even to today. It's part of who they are. As long as they've celebrated the Passover, it's united them as a people But the blood of sacrifice isn't just found in this Exodus passage. passage. It's actually a recurrent theme throughout the Old Testament, right? God instructs priests to use the blood of the sacrifice for cleaning or cleansing his people from sin. So we spoke about the gift of water last week as being cleansing. So we look at the gift of blood, which seems strange to us here in the 21st century as a sign of life and gift of cleansing. The first purpose for sacrifices in the Old Testament are called sacrifices of expiation. That's a fancy theological word, expiation, which is a word for atonement. What does it mean to have a sacrifice of expiation? It means that this sacrifice takes away and cleans the sin. Expiation is to clean away the sin. We see evidence of it all over the Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 10, verse 17, confronting Aaron and his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, Moses says, why didn't you eat the sin offering in the sanctuary area? because those Eleazar and Ithamar were priests. It is most holy. It was given to you to take away the guilt of the community by making atonement for them before the Lord. Since its blood was not taken into the holy place, you should have eaten the goat in the sanctuary area as I commanded. Again, in Leviticus 17, we see an example of the sacrifice of expiation. Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of a creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar, says the Lord. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So this idea of blood being connected to life, being connected to expiation or cleansing here is in the Old Testament. You're probably familiar with that one. Next, there's this idea of sacrifice for a penalty, a substitutionary sacrifice. Sometimes it's called substitutionary atonement. In Ezekiel, we see this talked about. This is Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 19. Yet you ask, why does the Son not share in the guilt of the Father? Since the Son has done what is just and right, and has been careful to keep all my decrees, He will surely live, says Ezekiel, the one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. Well, what's, what's the prophet Ezekiel saying here? He's simply saying that God in his justice assigns punishment or penalty to those who sin. And to those who are righteous, he assigns reward. Seems pretty straightforward. But here's the rub. Is anyone righteous? No. So we get to Proverbs ten sixteen, which reads, The wages of the righteous is life, but the earnings of the wicked are sin and death. Let's continue on. The sacrifice of penalty is a sacrifice of substitution. And so in the Old Testament, we don't just have this idea of the sacrifice in the blood being for expiation, getting rid or cleaning from sins. We have this idea that somebody can step in and be substitute for the one who's been accused. The one who has sinned. Isaiah 53, verse 5, we read a prophecy about this person. It's definitely familiar to you, I'm sure. For he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Iniquity just being another word here for sin. So there is not just expiation, but substitutionary atonement. And who is this sacrifice? Who is this substitute? Well, that takes us back to John's gospel, where Jesus himself offers himself as a substitute. And again, a generation ago, this was one of the most well known verses of Scripture. I don't know that people know it so well anymore. But Jesus says Greater love hath no man than he who lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. John 15, 13. Who is the substitute, the willing substitute? Jesus. Finally, the sacrifice brings victory. And so we don't have just lamb or just friend, but we have victor. The victor who conquers sin and death. And there's a sacrifice that abolishes sin itself, that wins the ultimate victory. There is no example of it in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament does give us clues about it, about someone who will come and bring that final defeat of sin and death. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 9b through 14 tells us that Jesus was also that sacrifice that brings victory. He, Jesus, does away with the first order to establish the second. And by that, will we who have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily in his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. What's the author of Hebrews talking about there? He's talking about the Old Testament sacrificial system and the Old Testament priests. There's this continual plume of smoke going out from the tabernacle And then from the gates of the temple with this sacrifice continually, this blood being offered to be cleansing. But the author of Hebrews says that that comes to an end with Jesus Christ. That there will never be a sacrifice again in that way and because there never needs to be a sacrifice again in that way. Because verse 12, when Christ had offered up for all time, a single sacrifice for our sins, he sat down on the right hand of God, waiting from that, for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering or sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's showing us that third type of sacrifice. The sacrifice that wins victory and conquer sin and death. So again, when we look today at the gospel passage, don't let it just hit your head and bounce off. Or don't just let your eyes run past it. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or every time that I'm standing up there at the altar, right before we take Holy Communion, and we sing together, Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. See what's going on. For we're remembering and we're proclaiming what John the Baptist proclaims in today's gospel. That there is a Lamb of God who is a lamb that cleanses, who is a friend who substitutes, who is a victor that conquers. And what's the response at the end of today's gospel? It's powerful. We see Andrew and Peter, who would become apostles, who had been disciples of John the Baptist, turn away at this point from John the Baptist and do what? Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Think about what that meant to them. They'd been following this John guy for some time, presumably. And they turn and they follow Jesus because John points to him and calls him the Lamb of God. Now, does John the Baptist know everything that he's saying here theologically? I don't know. We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. Maybe the Lord's given him some insight. Maybe he's only seeing part of it like many of the prophets did before in the Old Testament, seeing a shadow of what's to come. Is he seeing the cross? Is he seeing the sacrifice itself? Well, maybe. But why does this sacrifice matter? Because as we're going through the epiphany season, we're focusing on evangelism and our mission to the world. So I really want you to think about this. Because if you and I talk to Christians out there, there is more and more indifference to the most loving act of Jesus Christ. Jesus stretching his hands out on the hardwood of the cross and being crucified For us. There's more and more indifference to that. I think that it largely comes out of ignorance. Why would Jesus need to die for me? I didn't ask him to do that. How does his death have anything to do with me? How would you answer those questions if someone posed them to you? I've been thinking about that this week, and I ask you to think about it for the next week. What does Christ's sacrifice have to do with the average Joe out there? And why would he not see, or she not see, why Christ's sacrifice matters? Perhaps you have run into people that ask those questions. One option is to deny it completely. There was a movement in the 20th century where... People just ignored Christ's sacrifice. All that talk of sacrifice and blood, we don't want to talk about that. Let's talk about Jesus as a great moral leader. Let's talk about Jesus as a political leader. Let's talk about Jesus as a great teacher. That's not an option for a Bible-following Christian. I would argue it's not an option for any Christian, frankly. It was something that plagued the church in the 20th century, and it's sneaking in again here in the 21st century under the construct of social justice. It's interesting how these things come around and sneak into the church in various ways. Not that social justice is wrong, but if our focus is on what Jesus would have us do in society instead of looking at Jesus as the sacrifice to save us, we've got our priorities screwed up. Jesus is the sacrificed first so that he can be the example, not the other way around. And so we have to be guarded about that. Jesus is a good teacher, but that's only secondary to what he is as the sacrifice. So again, I come back to the question, what does Christ's sacrifice have to do with me as a 21st century person? or with someone out there as a 21st century person. Well, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world in its most obvious um, application seems really foreign today, right? We don't go out and sacrifice things anymore to cleanse, simply. Simply. And yet, Hebrews 9.22 says, "...without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins." New Testament scholar I. Howard Marshall writes this on the subject. He says, "...the language of sacrifice is no longer common currency today. The concept of guilt for offenses committed remains current, however. And with the consciousness, the guilt can only be removed by some act of restitution or evidence of penitence, or payment of penalty. Think about that, right? When something wrong is done, we don't make sacrifices anymore, at least blood sacrifices, but there is a cost. Restitution must be made to restore justice, right? Penitence must be seen. Marshall goes on, It's possible to understand the biblical concept of guilt over against God, whether in terms of disobedience to divine law or at a more profound level in terms of flouting and wounding the love of God. So perhaps we're far better off today talking more about the sacrifice of a friend, one man dying for his friends to take a penalty. We do seem to have examples of that today, right? That is still honored today. Soldiers, policemen, heroes who give their lives for their friends and their neighbors. That seems to at least ring true and be a currency of our culture, of our common understanding. Good leaders still sacrifice their comfort for the good of their people, Noble parents still sacrifice their jobs, their prestige, and their position for the good of their children. As we go into the world with the good news of Jesus, this is probably the tact that we should take when talking about the sacrifice of Christ. And it comes from the lips of Christ himself, after all, who said, greater love hath no man than he who gave his life for his friends. But the reason for that sacrifice of a friend is more than just a noble act or a gesture for Jesus. The reason is efficacious, which is a theological word that means it works. It works to save us, not because he's our friend, primarily, but because he's the lamb whose body was broken and whose blood was drawn on the cross for the sins of the world. Jesus is the Passover lamb to which all other sacrifices in the Old Testament point. And so, as J.I. Packer says, with other New Testament writers, St. Paul always points to the death of Jesus as an atoning event and explains the atonement in terms of represent- representative substitution, the innocent taking the place of the guilty in the name, in the- for the sake of the guilty under the acts of God's judicial retribution. Why do we celebrate on Sunday the way that we celebrate as Anglican Christians? Why is the altar at the center and not the pulpit or the lectern or the drum set? Why do we have Holy Communion every week? Because... It is the center of who we are, friends. Word and sacrament working together to illumine the very person of Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His body was broken. His blood was spilt. And there's nothing that's more important than that. The reason we celebrate Holy Communion every Sunday is that it is the heart of the Christian faith. For at the center of our faith is not some system of teaching or principles, as some people would make it out to be. The center of faith is not politics, as some people would make it out to be. The center of faith is not teachings or principles or rationalistic faith, as philosophers understand intellectually. Nor is it the dry faith of the legalist memory that recalls Scripture with citation and verse. No, no. The center of our faith is a man, the Son of God, the Father, who is broken for us. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us, for you bear and expiate our sins so that we can be clean. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world have mercy on us. You became our substitute and died so we might live. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Grant us your peace. You've abolished death and sin. Help us to live in peace, in the peace that you've established. Amen.